Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. While you're turning there, I had great confidence coming into this week that we were going to finish Romans chapter 11. And I lost that confidence very quickly. Uh, We're going to have part two of this last paragraph of Romans 11. And Lord willing, the final and uh, last part, part three next week. Um, I, I have just found that this is a theological and wonderful spiritual Pandora's box. You keep opening a door and there's five more doors and you open those and there's more doors. It is such a sweet, sweet passage. Romans chapter 11, let me read verses 33 through 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters that we've been studying for some months now, Paul presents the most definitive articulation of God's sovereignty in salvation of any of his epistles of anywhere in the Bible. This doctrine is pronounced, proclaimed, and explained in more detail than any other place in God's word. I want to confess, I clearly remember the time that I first gave careful attention to this passage. I grew up in a church that taught very much against God's sovereignty in salvation. And a friend of mine began to tell me that we're wicked sinners and no one would ever choose God unless he chose us. And and it made enough sense, but when he started talking about things like election and predestination, I started talking about free will. We came to a collision. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, all I want you to do, Ricky is go home, get your Bible, and read Romans chapter, uh, chapter 9. So I did. I remember where I was sitting. I can remember the humidity and the temperature in the room. It's so vivid as I was reading through this. I had read it before, but you know how you just kind of read and skip along on the surface? This was, this was a pretty serious debate, so I gave it great attention. The thing I remember most about that reading was how many times I said to myself, yes, but, I, I, yeah, hang on, but, wait, wait a minute, but this, but that, but, and maybe you've had a similar response. Now, if you've been with us for a long time, you know, maybe you've been here more recent and you are not quite aware, or maybe you're like me and you just need to hear it again. Turn back to Romans chapter 9 for a moment. Romans 9 verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Now we start getting into God's prerogative. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It's a prediction a year ahead that the angel would come back and Sarah would have a son. Not only this, there was also Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now listen to verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Unheard of in ancient Near East. But he wasn't, the older wasn't the, the promised one. Esau, it was Jacob. Just as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. And then Paul begins to explain with what can only be called a, called a non-explanation. For he said to Moses, this is back in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You notice that's not much of an argument at all. It's just saying this is who, uh, uh, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I've chosen For then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16 is critical. Salvation is dependent entirely on God. And the reason is we are bound by sin, dead in sin, unable to respond to God. And a God not reached down in condescending, sweet, gracious mercy, no one would choose. No one would believe. For the scripture says, and just when you think this is pretty intense, It's like the theological nails on the chalkboard start scratching down. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Paul says, because he knows what a reaction to that will be, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? How can God hold anybody accountable if it's all according to him? On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, what if God Although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, Christians, which he prepared beforehand for his glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Paul, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is perfectly, sorry, we're balanced. Because lest you think that he's some kind of hyper-Calvinist, look at chapter 10, verse 4, just a few verses later. No chapter divisions in his original autograph, remember. 
Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who is elect. Is that what it says? No. To everyone who is chosen. Is that what it says? To everyone who believes. So right there, in just a few verses, he balances out God's absolute sovereignty in choosing man's absolute responsibility in believing. And we have no prerogative in heaven, so all we are left with is the responsibility and the joy to believe the gospel. Now the question of chapter 9, and you can also add chapters 10 and through 11, is how do we respond to God's mercy? How do we respond to God's judgment? Well, I think these final verses in chapter 11 provide the answer. The only fitting response to God's sovereignty and mercy and God's sovereignty in judgment is to bow in humble adoration. Instead of saying, how can these things be? We should say, what a God. Wow, what a God. And that's exactly what Paul does. Remember that we, we broke this, these last few verses down, this last paragraph, into what can only be called three triads. and give you a high-altitude kind of look over it. There, there are three main points, but, but each of these points have three points. So it's three triads. There are three arguments, three theological, three theological triads that create this staggering doxology. And by staggering, I mean it should knock us on our knees. Three triads, three sections with three parts each, each intended to inform what can only be called staggering doxology. What is doxology? We sing this song called the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. A doxology is only a statement of praise. It's a a proclamation, a declaration of praise. Doxa from from glory in, uh, in the Greek means to make much, to glorify God. It's to stop and say, wow, what a God. That's what doxology means. Last week, we jumped into the first one. I'm going to give you a a quick overview of that, and then we're going to come back and look at number two. I had confidence that we could finish both of these today, and my confidence evaporated late uh, late yesterday afternoon, so we're going to come back and finish it next week as well. It's just too rich. Three theological triads for staggering doxology. Let's do a quick review of last, last time. The first triad includes this. Three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. Three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. This has three parts. First, he has limitless knowledge. This is review still. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. There's a little one-letter word in the Greek. Omega. Oh, and it's, it's a word used the same way you and I use the word O. When we don't know what to say and we don't have words, we just make this sound. O. We make it when we're, we discover something. O. We make it when we're in awe of something. O. It's the same idea. It's expressing exclamation or admiration. And as I said last time, there's a library of truth a library of insight in this little Greek letter. He starts out by saying, oh, just stop the presses. Stop and think, wow. After three chapters of the sovereignty of God, of the future of Israel, of God splicing in Gentiles into Israel's plan and coming back to splice Israel into his original plan, he just stops and says, oh, oh, wow. 
And then he goes to the riches of God. Interestingly, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This depth, we looked at last time, there's two words in here, two descriptions that describe uh, seafaring skills. Uh, soundings is what they would call it. You see the same idea happening in Acts chapter 27 when, when they were trying to find soundings to, in the shipwreck to see what was happening before uh, the, the ship came apart. This is one of the, the, the nautical terms, depth. It's when you couldn't use a rope to find the bottom. Oh, the depth, the limitlessness of the riches of God. He already talked about this back in chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of his riches, of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? Ephesians 3, 8, he says the, the, the riches of Christ are unfathomable. He calls them the unfathomable riches of Christ. Another seafaring term that we'll come back to in a moment. So this riches of God in Christ express themselves in the recognition that Paul has of his wisdom and his knowledge. Two sides of the same coin. The wisdom of God. That God does what he does on purpose, for a purpose, and has never, ever, 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 ever made a mistake. Do you believe that? I believe it theologically, but I want to tell you, there are times in my life when I thought, I just wanted to look up at heaven and say, God, you do know I'm on your side. But those unexpected difficulties still play into his perfect love and wisdom and providence in our lives. Though we've studied Romans 9 through 11 for a lot of months now, we, and we know a lot more about the mysteries of God, we don't know everything that God knows, and that's what Paul is saying here. Does anyone really fully understand election? If you do, let's go to lunch afterwards. I would love for you to explain that to me. Does anyone fully and completely understand the hardening of hearts that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay at the same time? Does anyone have satisfying answers as to why God would choose some and not choose all? Do we have a handle on God's closing the eyes and ears of Israel, the people who he chose to be his own? Does anyone have a chart? A chart that you can draw out maybe on your, your, uh, your dry erase wall, this dry erase paint that I've just seen, you can dry erase on it. And you've got a chart for all the future of God's dealings with the Gentiles and Jews, every date, every possibility. Can anyone fully explain God's dealings with Israel? And yet, is there any more comforting thought than this? That God is all wise then he says, the wisdom and knowledge of God, God knows everything. We looked at Psalm 139 in our last study. He knows everything. You can't hide from him. You can't hide anything from him. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He's aware of everything. He even knows, he even knows the day of your death as much as he knows the, knew the day of your birth. Had some fun discussions since our last study because uh, I Tongue-in-cheek, and it was a joke. If you want to eat cardboard, keep with your gluten-free stuff. That's okay. But you can eat all the gluten-free you want to. You can, eat, you can go to the gym seven times a week. You can uh, lift weights. You can run 10 miles and end up in the same place you began. 
You can do all that and you will never add one nanosecond to your life. You, know, you may increase the quality of your life and, and, and let's have at that. He knows the day of our, our death. He says, in a book, every one of our days was written. He has written. What a humbling thought. God knows not only the day I'm going to die, he knows how I'm going to die. He knows who will be around, if I'll be alone, if it will be long and suffering, if it will be short and unexpected. He knows that now. That's just our little bitty part of eternity called our life. The point Paul's making here is his knowledge extends to eternity past and to eternity future. It's amazing. Secondly, we also notice that he has unquestionable judgment. This has to do with his wisdom as well. He says how, in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments. The Greek word for unsearchable is really interesting. It means unable to trace or fully understand. I did some more work on this word, and it actually uh, is a hunting word. It means you can't track an animal. You can't trace it. You can't find its footprints. You can't follow it. It's untraceable. God's judgment is unsearchable, untraceable. I mean, it goes back to the argument we just read. He chose Jacob over Esau before they were born, even though Esau was the firstborn. He chose Israel and, and Abraham over any other person and any other nation. He chose to include Gentiles in his salvation plan. That's his judgment. I can promise you this. Given 10,000 eternities, none, none of us would have sat in a boardroom and came up with a revelation called the Bible and a plan called the gospel. Untraceable. Only God would have invented this. Which leads to this third little insight. He has inscrutable plans. Verse 33 says also, and unfathomable are his ways. Now we're back to that sounding rope. Remember they would tie rocks at different depths. They would lower the rope over the side of the, of the ship to see how, how far it would go before it would hit the bottom. They had different sized ropes. This says bottomless, unfathomable. You can't find the fathom. You can't find the bottom of the ocean are his ways. They're beyond our ability to control and comprehend. Remember Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Then he says this. For my thoughts, not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Think about that. My ways are not like yours. Who would invent a way? Who would invent a scheme? If you were God, would you ever invent the gospel where I'm going to send my son, my only begotten son, my my, my precious son, to die a, a death having been perfect and never deserved anything to be punished for and to be punished in the place of sinners who did sin against the Father who sent his Son, and he died for in place of their sins because the wages of sin is death. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and is alive right now, making intercession for the saints. He's at the right hand of God. And also his spirit is with us as well. No one invents that. His ways are not our ways. 
And this, remember the context of this. This is in, the, in Romans, in looking at the ways of God with salvation. He goes on in Isaiah to say, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I think better than you do. I think higher than you do. As I said last time, we need to be careful what we assume about God. Wow, sometimes we say things like, I think God is trying to teach me a lesson. Does God ever try to do anything that he doesn't do? Let's put it in the baseball analogy. Does God ever swing and miss and then turn back and look at the umpire and say, was that a strike? God doesn't try to do anything that he doesn't do. But sometimes we think, ah, God, bless his heart, trying to do something, hope he gets it done. God is doing this. God is telling me this. God is orchestrating this. We don't always know that. Better to say, boy, it seems like God is, and leave it in the area of you don't completely understand. Now, that was the first point that we looked at last week. I want to move on to the second triad for staggering doxology, and this is so, so sweet. Three questions provoking answers of God's greatness. Three questions provoking answers, and the answer is going to be God's greatness. Here, Paul uses three short, simple, staccato, rhetorical questions to express his praise of God. Now, these aren't questions that he's asking in order to find out something. He's not asking, expecting us to answer as if he doesn't know. They're rhetorical questions that really function as statements. We all understand questions that are not questions, questions that are really statements, don't we? Kind of like husbands when your wife asks, so, thanks for serving me, but can I ask you a question? Are you really going to wash that brand new red sweatshirt with your brand new white dress shirt in hot water with bleach? That's not a question, guys. That's get the things out of my washer. That's what that is. I remember my, this, this happened. If it happened once 10 times, it happened thousand times. My mom used to always ask this question. I'd be standing in the kitchen with her alone, no one in earshot, just me and my mom. And she would say, who is going to take the trash out, Ricky? That wasn't a question. It's not like she was saying, let me think. You know, honey, I was wondering the trash is full. It needs to be taken out. I wonder who, who would take that out. She was telling me to take the trash out. That's how these questions function. They're not questions. They're not interrogatives. They're indicatives. They're declarations. Let's look at them one by one. First one is this. Who can explain God? Who can explain God? Or said with, uh, uh, in the indicative, no one can explain God. Who can explain God? Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a good question. Now remember what he's, what he's just said. God chooses. You're responsible to leave. He's chose Israel. He's grafted in the Gentiles. There will be a future for Israel. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you really think you've got him figured out? And by the way, the three questions we're going to look at all increase in 
let me, let me choose these words carefully. They increase, increase in intensity, they cr- increase in uh, audacity, and they increase in absurdity. He starts out first grade here. Who's known the mind of the Lord? This is a citation of Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has known the mind of God? In other words, who knows what God knows and can completely explain what God is doing and what God is thinking and why God does how, what he does? Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Directed, understood, perceived, manipulated. Who has understood? Job 5 says, Who does great and unsearchable things? Wonders without number. God does. Who can explain God? Even with his knowledge, his working. Think for a moment of the, not the tens, not the hundreds or thousands or ten thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions or billions or trillions. Think of the countless number of processes that are happening right now in this room. How many cells and molecules and atoms do you have that are being held together by the greatness of God? How many physical and bodily, chemical functions are happening in your brain with synapses, gaps between two two neurofires that that are using norepinephrine and serotonin to, to send these signals back and forth between cells at the microscopic level to even give you the ability to think. Think about your eardrum that's vibrating rattling bones translated into electricity put into a soft organ called your brain and giving you the ability to hear right now. Think of your thoughts. That's just in this room. Imagine that times everybody in the world alive today and then everybody who's ever been alive ever and will be alive. And he knows all of it with instant exact Precision, recall, and direction. Wonders without number. Job 9, verse 10. Who does great things? Unfathomable. There's our word again. And wondrous works without number. Job 26, 14. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. How faint a word we hear of him. We see his ways, but we don't see him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? There are some things, when when God is in the thunder When we hear the thunder, we think, what a God who would do that. And then there's things we don't even notice or take notice of. Who can understand all that? 1 Corinthians 2.16, he quotes this, Paul quotes the same passage. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What we do understand is what he's given us of himself in Christ. Moses wrote the same principle and when he wrote in Deuteronomy 29, 29, you, you know it well. The secret things, what? Belong to the Lord, but we've got to keep reading. But the things revealed belong to us. We can't fully understand God, but he expects us to understand what he said about who he is, what he's done, and what he expects. We should remain confident regarding what God has revealed and cautious about what he has not. It's maybe one of the highest expressions of spiritual maturity to say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to keep studying, but, but I don't know. 
And with this context, what do we do? Let's remember where we are. What do we do with the God who chooses and the man, and man who's responsible? How, how do we fit all that together? I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know. Second question. Who can counsel God? Who can give God advice? Who can counsel God? Verse 34 in the middle says, Who became his counselor? See how it's increasing in intensity? Who knows the mind of the Lord? Fairly generic. Who thinks they can give God counsel? Now we're getting way more specific. Paul asks this second of three questions. It's more intense. He stays in Isaiah 43, 40, verse 13. The last part of the verse says, Or as his counselor, who has informed him? Who has given God counsel? Listen, there is always a great temptation for anyone, even believers, to try to inform or instruct God when we have difficulty with his ways. I think this most shows up in how we pray. Are we truly asking and requesting things from the sovereign king of the universe? Or are we subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, counseling God and letting him know what we think he should be doing? You find just the opposite with Jesus, who said, not my will, but yours be done. I think I've seen the most theologically egregious expressions of becoming God's counselors when it comes to the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is the, remember this passage is the capstone to these previous three chapters. Well, I know that the Bible says that, but that can't be what it means. Which is another way of saying, God has a serious speech impediment. I'm sorry that he couldn't be more clear when he, when he communicated if he had just had me, I would have given footnotes in the Bible, side note margin, margin notes, so, so that people would have known exactly what I did not mean, because it sounds odd when you consider what I said that I did mean. Why is this the case? Why do we struggle with this doctrine so much? And I, I'm at the head of the list. I my faith almost came to a crisis when I was having that discussion with that man who, remember at the beginning of the sermon I said, led me to go read Romans 9. I remember going and reading it and just saying, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Don't forget the most fearful words out of our soul ought to be to read something in the Bible and say, yes, but. Why do we do this? Because we actually have the audacity to think we know more than God. Oh, we wouldn't say we do, but we think we might. I know Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said those things, but he didn't mean them. Or we think we know better than God. Well, I know God said that, but there's been, there's been a few thousand years since then. And, and I think he's had a change of heart. Or we have the audacity to think that we, are, that we actually feel more deeply and more sensitively than God. I mean, I know God is harsh, and he would send some to hell and some to heaven, but, I mean, if he were like me, everybody would get a second chance. We have the audacity to feel we're more compassionate than God. Hell lasts forever and is real. 
huh, maybe there's another chance. Maybe it's a thousand years and then you get to come out. Maybe it's just a, a theological timeout. We think we're more understanding than God. In a word, we deep down can easily believe that God should listen to us, should listen to our wisdom, so we can counsel him because we are such wise counselors. God would do well to listen to us. That's what Paul's asking. Really? Who's counseled God? Remember, the, the, we sing this uh, in the Hallelujah Chorus. We, we sing this in so many uh, Christmas songs, but think of it in context here. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful what? Counselor. Why do you go to a counselor? Because you think they might have something helpful to say. No greater help than with God himself. I love Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. Who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great? It's wonderful. I wonder why I, I wonder why we reject his counsel and his words so easily. He can be so clear and we can revolt against that by by our own intuition, we actually think when God says righteousness brings you peace and joy and fruit and fellowship with me, we actually think sin will make me happier than God will. By the way, this is why we chose the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges in our care groups last year is to get to this point. If God is the great counselor and he's wise, can he be trusted and should I trust him? Now, this third question is this. To whom is God indebted? This is the most egregious of all. He basically says, does God owe you anything? Verse 35. Or who has first given to him, God, that it might be paid back to him again? Who has God in the debit column? Who has God on the ledger as he owes me? The apostle raises here the incredible prideful disposition that holds a deep belief that God might owe us an explanation of what he does, why he does it, and give us the answers to all our questions now. I love that what C.S. Lewis said, the first two words out of every Christian's mouth upon entrance into heaven will be, of course, it makes sense then. He owes us nothing now. And some people live as if he does. So many people believe that if God does not provide every answer to every question, then he should not be believed and cannot be trusted. I think the idea is that someone has loaned something to God or given him something uh, uh, value, and now God is, has the debtor's ethic. Well, they did this for me, so I got to do it for them too. Paul's saying, is that really our view of God? And then he quotes this question from the one place which everyone's mind travels to when we think of questioning God. 
If you were to go in the Bible to find one place where you were going to hear someone question God, which book of the Bible would you land in? Job. And that's where he quotes from. First of all, in Job 35, 7, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? It's tongue in cheek. You really think you have something to give God? Listen to Job's response, excuse me, God's response to Job in Job 41. Now, this is a, right in the middle. Remember, he starts talking back to Job in Job 38 and finishes up in uh, 41 and then 42 is the epilogue. This is the final exclamation point that, that God says to Job, and this is the place where Paul turns to quote here at the end of Romans 11. It's a cool text. Job chapter 41. You're welcome to turn there. You can just listen. Now, if you're an adult, this will be interesting. If you're a kid, this is incredible. Job 41 verse 1. God says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? I read a commentary that said, Leviathan is a crocodile. Leviathan's a dinosaur. And if you're not convinced of that, go back into chapter 40, and you also have Behemoth, who they say is an ox, who swings his tail like a cedar tree. That's just bad imagination. Can you draw out Leviathan, this dinosaur that's in the, in, the, in the water with a fish hook? Can you press his tongue down with a cord? Can you put a rope on his nose or pierce his jaw with a fish hook? With a hook? You can do all those things with a dinosaur, with a, a crocodile, by the way, not with a dinosaur. By the way, Job is one of the, is the oldest book we have written. There's no mention of Moses, no mention of the law, no mention of it. This is pre-Abraham. Maybe not long after Noah. And yes, I believe that dinosaurs were on the ark. Get two of every kind. Do dinosaurs qualify as... Anyway, that's another sermon. Can you put a, nose, a rope on his nose, pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Or will he speak to you with soft words? This is a mean, mean Dude, will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Are you going to make him your pet? Will you play with him as a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Give it to your kids? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? You can have dinosaur skin boots? No, you don't go ask him for his skin. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? You can't kill this thing. It's so armor plated. Lay your hand on him. I love this. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle, because you will not do it again. <laughs> Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? Just to see him is to crumble in fear. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who can stand before me? If this is a little dinosaur that I made, and he's so fearsome, you're going to go tango with me? And then it leads us to this question in verse 11 that he quotes in Romans 11, Romans 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God owns everything. He owes nothing to anyone. Now, if you're like me, you come to the end of chapter 11 and you just say, God's sovereign, I'm responsible to believe, that's hard to figure out, he chooses some, he doesn't choose others, he hardens some, he doesn't others, I'm dead in my sins, only Christ can save me, 
He's going to save a future Israel. It's amazing he saved a present Gentile nation. And your mind is just melting under the, the sovereign prerogative of God. So we're going to return and, and spend just a brief minute with an old friend. Horatius Bonner is one of my favorite Puritan authors. Horatius Bonner is, uh, has written a, a sermon that's one of the most impactful in my life about the sovereignty of God. And I've shared this with you before, and I unashamedly share it with you again. This is a paragraph out of this book with a sentence, and I want to tell you this. This sentence changed my life. Books don't change your life. Typically, sentences do. You just got to read the whole book to find the sentence. Here's what Bonner says about the sovereignty of God. If I admit that God's will regulates the great movements of the universe, I must admit that it equally regulates the small. It must do this for the great depend on the small. The minutest movement of my will is regulated by the will of God. And again, and in this I rejoice. Woe is me if it's not so. If I shrink from so unlimited control and guidance, it is plain that I dislike the idea of being wholly at the disposal of God. Can you identify with that? I'm wishing to be, in part, at my own disposal. I am ambitious of regulating the lesser movements of my will while I give up the greater to his control. And thus it comes out that I wish to be a God to myself. I do not like the thought of God having all of my destiny, all of, of having, let's say that again. I do not like the thought of God having all of the disposal of my destiny. If he gets his will... I am afraid I shall not get mine. Is that not a sentence for the ages? Is that not how we think so often? If I obey God, I won't be happy. If I don't sin, I won't be happy. It comes to this. That God, the God about whose love I was fond of speaking, is a God to whom I cannot trust myself implicitly for eternity. Yes, this is the real truth. And this is that sentence. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Just let that sink in. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty, which is where most people end up by the end of Romans 9, 10, and 11, is because we're suspicious of God's heart. And yet, the men in our day who deny this absolute sovereignty are the very men who profess to rejoice in the love of God, who speak of that love as if there were nothing else in God but love. The more I understand of the character of God as revealed in Scripture, the more shall I see that He must be sovereign, and the more shall I rejoice from my inmost heart that He is so. Let's go back to the, the real issue. If you struggle with the sovereignty of God over your life, if we struggle with the sovereignty of God in salvation, it boils down to the fact that we think that God's character is suspicious. If he is all-knowing, all-wise, and all-holy, can he be trusted? Can't he be trusted? We haven't even got to the last best part. From him, 
to him, through him, might not mean what you think it means. And if you want to know what it means, come back next 